Hey everyone, if you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my Anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. In the name of the Holy Trinity, here begins the handbook of Duoda, which she sent to her son William. I am well aware that most women rejoice that they are with their children in this world, but I, Duoda, am far away from you, my son William. For this reason I am anxious and filled with longing to do something for you. So I send you this little work written down in my name, that you may read it for your education as a kind of mirror. And I rejoice that, even if I am apart from you in body, the little book before you may remind you when you read it of what you should do on my behalf. Welcome to episode three of Catholic Lives. Uh, this is the episode on the ninth century Carolingian noblewoman, Duoda, and that is a selection from uh, her handbook, a handbook that she wrote for her son William in 841 to 843, in which she gives her her counsel for how to live his life. Uh, And uh, our little biography today focuses on uh, what must have been a pretty extraordinary woman, uh, who, um, is, uh, who is significant, is known to us only through her little handbook that she wrote uh, for her son. Uh, and it is the only work surviving from the Carolingian era, the uh, 9th and 10th century, um, written by a laywoman. We have other works by uh, women religious, but none by a laywoman except for Duoda. And so its significance for uh, the historical record of the life of laywomen in the period and for her piety, as you will see, it's the reason why we're doing this little uh, episode on her, uh, is her the evidence for the piety of lay noblewomen in the period. So let's get started. A few words about Carolingian society, if you don't know much about the early Middle Ages. If you can recall, following the collapse of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire falls in Western Europe in 476, and a bunch of little kingdoms emerge across Europe. Most of these kingdoms are nothing more than petty, you know, warlords, sort of um, petty states. A few become large and more sophisticated. The most large and prosperous of these was the Kingdom of the Franks, which emerged in the late 5th century as a dominant power centered on Paris, but it began to decline during the 6th century until in the early 7th century. Uh, the stewards of the Frankish monarchy, the so-called mayors of the palace, more or less take control. One of them, Charles Martel, will establish his son, Pepin, on the crown in the 750s. He'll be crowned by the Pope. And uh, he, in turn, will uh, have his pass his kingdom to his sons, one of whom Charles eventually take over. And Charles will be known to history as... Charles the Great, Charlemagne, and Charlemagne will build a European empire and expand its borders across the continent, and um, Charlemagne conquers uh, several peoples in Europe um, and expands the borders of uh, his empire into Germany, something, by the way, the old Roman Empire had never done, and the borders of his empire stretch from the Pyrenees in the west in Spain to the Danube River in the east, and essentially, by the way, um, uh, Charlemagne's empires, the borders of his empire at its height, match the borders of Western Europe more or less till this day. 
So literally, he creates Europe in some ways. And uh, Charlemagne, after a series of wars, uh, eventually becomes an ally of the papacy. He is crowned uh, Holy Roman Emperor, Emperor of the Romans, by the Pope in 800, and so left a legacy of uh, Christian monarchy in that body after his death in 814. However, Charlemagne uh, left his kingdom to his son Louis the Pious uh, in 814, and during his lifetime, he split the, king, uh, the kingdom into three and assigned each of uh, portion of, of this to his three sons to rule under him. If you've ever read King Lear, this is a bad idea. It didn't work. It caused no, amount, no small amount of dissension uh, as each of the sons vied for power. They rebelled against him in the 830s. And an 840 civil war uh, broke out. Uh, eventually, uh, after uh, Louis, uh, Louis dies in 841, in 843, uh, Charlemagne's empire is finally partitioned between the three of them. Uh, between uh, Charles the Bald, who takes the kingdoms in the west, part of the kingdom in the west, modern-day France, uh, Lothair the emperor uh, in the center of the, of the country in modern-day Germany, and the east part of, to Louis the German. Uh, in 843. And it's in the period of this war in which Duoda writes her book, and as we're going to see in a moment, uh, it is bound up with these events. And if you don't know anything about Charlemagne, as well besides his uh, prowess in war, uh, was a patron of the uh, devout man and a patron of the church, he was also someone who patronized learning and scholarship. This will also get us into Duoda's handbook. Now a few things about uh, Carolingian women, women in the Carolingian period. And one of the things about this period is that women were uh, entrusted, for the most part, especially noble women, with the moral instruction of their children. And there's evidence that they played a fairly substantial role in uh, furthering moral reform and preaching the necessity of changing behavior due to all the reforms that uh, Charlemagne and his court put in place. Because uh, Charlemagne took his nobility with him across Europe and used them to run his empire, many uh, Carolingian aristocratic women, especially, and this is true of Duoda, lived alone at their estates the majority of the time um, because their husbands were on campaign or at the court. And so therefore women assumed uh, the majority of responsibility for child-rearing, family affairs, as well as the day-to-day the, uh, -day management of their family's lands and wealth. And in fact, Carolingian women could, at law, uh, own their own land and transfer land, as well as that and uh, movable assets. So they had a fair amount of freedom, uh, relatively speaking, in the early middle period, early modern, early medieval period here in Carolingian times. And in fact, even in spite of serious social inequality, Carolingian law held women and men more or less as equals. Women could and did access the legal system. <clears throat> when, for example, they were abused by, by, uh, by their husbands. And sometimes we have records of them actually getting response from, especially church courts, uh, bishops, uh, sometimes make sanctuary for women who were threatened by their husbands. So there isn't some indication women had access to and some confidence in protection by the law during this period. Uh, their most crucial role, let's get back to Duoda, was, of course, the education and moral instruction of children and their household, which included servants. And so um, you're going to have women like Duoda taking on that role, as well as all the other roles that inv are involved in household management. She actually tells us in her book, in her little handbook, that while she is uh, 
running her husband's estate, she actually takes out loans from a Jewish creditor to pay her husband's debts because he's been off on campaign so long. In fact, look at it for the moment. Most of what we can tell, um, uh, he was on campaign or in, at the emperor's court most of uh, the time they were married. So she's in this time period where women are, again, as in most, uh, this is a very patriarchal society. This is a very hierarchical society. Uh, it is a society ruled by sort of warrior nobility. Uh, and yet there was a space for women of a certain rank to have uh, the ability not only to uh, own things in their own right, clothing, jewels, stuff like this, land, but to have a role within the Christian world as educating, again, not just educating children, by the way, you're educating the next generation of leaders in society, so they have a direct impact. And that is, to come to, finally, to Adwoda's book, her handbook, as she calls it, um, in Latin, and it's written in Latin, um, which she writes for her son, William. I need to go further here into the circumstances she was living in. Uh, Dorota was married to a man named Bernard of Septimia, um, Septimania, in the 20s. Um, we have other records that indicate that he was uh, absent from the States for most of the time they were married. Now, Bernard of Septimania was the was an intimate, he was a sort of a chancellor, or chamberlain, excuse me, of Louis the Pious, the son of Charlemagne. And so spent much of his time traveling around the empire for him. When, you know, dissension broke out with his sons, he was on Louis the Pious's side. So she would have been running the household at their, at their estates. The states, estates were at Ouzay in the Rhone River Valley in southern France. This would be outside the city of Avignon, if you know what it is on the map. And, um, but after the death of Louis the Pious in 841, Bernard, in the midst of the civil war between the sons, was forced to accept the overlordship of Charles the Bald. And Charles, of course, didn't necessarily trust uh, this former friend of his father who he was fighting. So it, to guarantee Bernard's loyalty, he took his son William more or less as a hostage back to his court to secure his loyalty. And again, if you're thinking, by the way, this sounds really cutthroat and kind of like Game of Thrones, that's not necessarily the wrong implication to draw. Um, the nobility in Charlemagne's time was generally more learned than it had been previously, but uh, noble families, again, their experience is mostly based on, their rule of society is mostly based on warfare. As one historian put it, um, noble families of this period uh, could be characterized as, quote, cutting throats and founding churches, unquote. Piety and warfare were the two big things they had in common. And so, uh, as her son is away from her in her book, and she mentions this, she comes through pretty clearly, she, she feels the separation from her uh, eldest son, as well, by the way, from her younger son, whom Bernard takes with him when he leaves in order to have another heir near him so that he can be secure there. And so Duota begins to write her handbook in 841, and if you don't know anything about medieval writing, this is actually part of a long-standing tradition of medieval writing, sometimes called a mirror for princes, and it's part of a genre of teaching, you know, nobility or kings, how to act, how to comport themselves as rulers, how to comport themselves as Christian rulers, especially. And Duoda is a very pious person. She is imbued with the piety of the Carolingian period. Uh, she is also, by the way, educated um, according to the standards of the time. And this is something women could have achieved if they were of noble rank uh, in, uh, in Charlemagne's time. Uh, again, he brought some of the best scholars uh, uh, across Europe to his court at Aachen in Germany, modern-day Germany. And this she would have had, and she indicates in her book, because she quotes almost all the same sorts of texts that 
for example, uh, Einhard, who's a scholar and a biographer of Charlemagne and his court, would have cited in his biography both early church fathers, Latin fathers, but also some classical text as well. And she certainly knows writers like Augustine of Hippo very, very well and displays this in her handbook. She eventually sends it off to William in 843, but he likely never received it because when the empire is divided in 843, permanently after the Treaty of Verdun, Charles the Bald will actually execute Bernard of Septimania, her husband, and then shortly thereafter, uh, her son William was killed attempting to avenge his father's death. We don't know if he ever received it or not. We don't even know if uh, she outlived her son. She tells us in the book she's actually fairly ill while writing it. She may have predeceased them. Um, her younger son, however, survived. Uh, and in fact, he, her child, according to accounts, is someone named Bernard Plantevelu, uh, which, um, which means hairy feet in, in, in French, uh, who would actually go on to found the Duchy of Aquitaine, and whose son, her grandson, William the Pious, would endow the famous Benedictine monastery of Cluny in the 10th century. So she does have a legacy. But her real legacy is her handbook, which is um, something I actually teach in my, my uh, college um, Western Civ courses, Great Books courses. And it's essentially a manual which, again, gives instructions about how to comport yourself toward, um, toward rulers, how to pray, teaches all these things that are pretty, um, pretty standard for these types of works. Uh, and in it, she, like I said, when she displays her learning, displays um, how much, uh, obviously, she sort of cares uh, about him, but also the good things that a good uh, Christian uh, ruler should know. And just to give you just a few uh, snippets of this, she will tell him, for example, she's talking about worshiping God early on in the book. And um, describing God, she says, quote, Believe that he is above, below, within, and without, for he is higher, deeper, inside and outside. He is above, and then he oversees and rules us. He is high, and as the psalmist says, his glory is above the heavens. He is below, for he support, supports us all. In him we live and move and are, and we exist in him always. He is within, for he fills and satisfies us with good things, as it is written. The earth shall be filled with the fruit of thy works, and thou fillest the blessing, uh, fill us with blessing of a living creature. He is outside, for he surrounds us with an impregnable wall, fortifies us, protects us, and defends us. As it is written, he girds us with a wall and puts on his crown like a shield. I, your mother, though I may be worthless in the smallness and the shallowness of my understanding, I believe that he who is God is such and is blessed for all time. Amen. And by the way, you have heard in that passage several citations of scripture. That's, that's a theme about the immensity and the all-pervasiveness of God that was... Uh, typical of the time, uh, churchmen who were uh, literate would have uh, written things like that, uh, and she's well versed in, in that type of writing. So it is this very interesting, intimate, uh, intimate account where she's obviously trying to reach her son, whom she dearly misses, pretty clearly. Um, but it's also something in which you know, I won't read any more of the book here, but um, she will emphasize uh, the duty of William to take care of the poor, uh, to practice works of charity, works of love, and love defines God. Uh, she will emphasize orthodoxy. Um, there's a really uh, neat passage in there where she's talking about, you know, praying for all men, praying for uh, everyone without failing because no one is beyond redemption. 
this is uh, where she says here, quote, uh, never to, it says never to despair of anyone, quote, but implore God faithfully for all, unquote, except maybe, I'm paraphrasing here, for Arian heretics. She mentions the Arian heresy. She mentions um, the doctrine of the Trinity as something he should support, especially in here. So she's taking uh, initiative and care for his spiritual and uh, religious welfare in a pretty, uh, pretty striking way, if you know anything about uh, this time frame. Uh, other things that are interesting about her book is that in terms of Carolingian piety, one of the things that sets it off from the rest of the Middle Ages is that, you know, this is a lay piety. And what I mean by that is in the Middle Ages, if you don't know, there came to be this thinking later on from the 11th century onwards that, you know, the monastic vocation um, was the superior way um, to gain salvation. That it was, if you really wanted to be serious about the Christian life, you, you know, you would, you would go into monastic life or into the priesthood. And um, there is, you know, and she, and she has laudatory things to say about the clergy, but in here she insists on lay life as a possible means to salvation. She insists, for example, on uh, the vocation of marriage as a sacred one uh, and uh, all those other sorts of things. She also, by the way, teaches him how to pray, insisting on using the church's own circle, uh, cycle of prayers, the official cycle of the church's prayer to pray, which is something Charlemagne did, actually. And so you have this odd, you know, medieval text in which you have, you know, other enough this sort of um, what sound like anticipations of the Second Vatican Council's emphasis on the vocation of laity and things of this nature. So it's a, a very interesting and um, enlightening book in that regard. But tell gives us a window into someone who lived a life of struggle because, if you know the outcome of her story, again, she, she never sees William again. She never sees... And either of her sons ever again. Uh, certainly never saw her husband, who she probably wasn't that close to. Uh, but in her work, she leaves us an example of piety and of perseverance in faith. And um, we get a glimpse of someone who, again, was not, uh, as far as we know, elevated into sainthood, uh, but who lived a strong and faith-filled Catholic life in the midst of difficult circumstances. And so, um, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, please go to uh, iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you are, and if you like it and haven't subscribed, please do. Uh, like or subscribe on iTunes. Uh, leave comments on iTunes if you want. Please, uh, you know, um, check out uh, our Facebook page. Uh, Facebook page is Controversies in Church History. Um, you can find more information about what I do there. Uh, I have a website. I don't update it very often, but it's there as well. So, and uh, please help spread the word. I hope you've enjoyed this episode on, on Duota, and uh, hopefully uh, you'll come back and listen again. Thank you.